Hello, Politics Plus Media 101. We have an excellent show ahead for you. We are with Ellie Honig. Ellie Honig is known to many of you listeners as a CNN legal analyst. He is also the author of Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, uh, his new book from HarperCollins. He was previously the author of, I, know, I suppose he still is, the author of Hatchet Man, which is a, a, a sort of an expose on the tenure at DOJ of uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr. And um, Ellie was a federal prosecutor for many years. I think between 2004 and 2012, he was at the Southern District of New York, the most famous of all U.S. attorneys' office in the country. And Ellie, we brought you on to talk about the book, but the timing is so incredibly fortuitous because in the last few days, we've had more news about big criminal investigations of high-profile political figures than we've had in the previous several months combined. I kind of want to start off by asking you about the news of the day. And that is the news that there is a uh, grand jury uh, been impaneled by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to investigate that Stormy Daniels hush money scheme that sent Michael Cohn to jail a few years ago. And it's interesting, Ellie, because this is the same office that controversially shut down prosecution of Trump tax cases that many people thought was stronger than this case, which everyone thought was kind of dead. So, Ellie... With all of that in mind, what's going on here? What's your reading of the situation? So first of all, thanks for having me, guys. Good to be with you again. I don't want to name drop, but I do want to tell you because I think it's kind of cool. I'm doing two interviews tonight, one with you you both and the other with Anderson Cooper. And Anderson's interview with me, he led off by saying, is this just a coincidence that your book is coming out right <laughs> at this moment? I said, yes, it's a happy coincidence. So the Manhattan DA, which is a state-level prosecutor, and I should say the current Manhattan DA is Alvin Bragg, who is a friend of mine. You know, I always have to disclose this. And a former colleague of mine, we worked together at the SDNY, not on the same kind of cases, but, you know, in the building at the same time, we were friends there. Alvin is now the DA for Manhattan. And we've learned today that Manhattan DA is going to take that evidence about the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and put it in front of a state grand jury which could well result in an indictment. What's so interesting and fortuitous is I have reporting, brand new reporting in my book, that two years ago, as Trump was getting ready to leave office, January 2021, our former office, the feds right across the street, had the meetings on whether to do the exact same thing. They went through all the evidence on Donald Trump in the hush money payment. And of course, we know the outcome. He wasn't charged. But I really get into the reasons why in the book and what the deliberation was like behind closed doors. And I'll sort of sum it up by saying it wasn't really a problem with the strength of the evidence. It was more of a political consideration and more of a consideration of, frankly, they expected him to get charged with something bigger by someone else, whether it was January 6th or Ukraine or Mueller. And none of that has come to pass. And now everyone's kind of looking at each other. But the DA is going to do their own evaluation of the case, and um, that could come back to life. How common is it for prosecutors to not pursue charges in one situation because they're waiting or hoping or predicting that future charges may be brought, especially when they may not have evidence about those future charges like they do about the, the case that they're reviewing and, and discussing? I mean, that precise scenario is very uncommon. I can't cite an example to you. But, but what I will tell you is it does happen sometimes that, for example, when I was prosecuting mob cases, I we would be closing in on a certain gangster. And then we would find out that our friends and neighbors across the street, across the river, John, where your father used to work at the Eastern District of New York, were looking at the same guy. 
And so we had to do what lawyers call deconflict, meaning, okay, who's going to charge him with what? Are you going to go first? Are we going to go first? Is one side going to take all the charges? Frankly, those conversations got kind of angry and contentious. We used to fight with the Eastern District a lot over who got to charge what. Um, that's the closest analog I can think of. I mean, look, prosecutors are allowed to take practical considerations into effect. It doesn't have to just be this robotic mathematical calculation where we have enough evidence, hence we charge. You are supposed to think about all the various factors. But I cannot point you to a case where somebody passed on charging a high profile, high priority target because, well, someone else is going to get him without, you know, just on sort of assumption. They didn't go confirm with anybody. The Southern District didn't confirm that whoever prosecutor was going to charge Trump for January 6th, they were just sort of reading the tea leaves, I guess. So I want to zoom out uh, away from Trump for a second, even though this probably applies to Trump. And first, say I, I really enjoyed your book. I'm most of the way through it. I like how in a lot of instances, you start out almost with your personal experience and then hit on a foundational point and then relate it to some case that we all know about, right? Epstein, Trump, Bill Cosby, so on and so forth. So kudos to that. I really haven't read many books like this. And it's adds some legitimacy because we're hearing from the horse's mouth. But a lot of your book focuses on the systems almost that wealthy criminal people create that either purposefully or as a result of the way that they just naturally operate, insulate themselves from getting charged. So just to run off a few, it's the way they talk with the culture they create. It's the way they insulate themselves from potential crimes, whether it be literal proximity or the theoretical proximity. And there are a bunch of other examples, wealth for lawyers and stuff. And, and that really makes me question, is it just the way that wealthy, powerful people are able to game the system in a in a legal way? Or are there actually two different systems of justice for the wealthy and the average person? Yeah, it's a great question. Sometimes in gaming the system, powerful people cross the line and commit additional crimes, witness tampering, that kind of thing, money laundering. Um, but sometimes it's just sort of bred into our system. And in that respect, we do have two different systems. And I should say, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a, I'm not a cynic about our system. I was a prosecutor for 14 years. I believe in our system and our democracy. I think it's not perfect, which is the point of, of writing this book. I sort of attribute this to, to three factors. One is we have a system that has inherent features, not flaws, but features that favor powerful people. Two, your savvier bosses, and in order to become a boss, you have to be pretty savvy, Either, either consciously or instinctively know how to exploit those advantages. And three, I am critical at points in the book of prosecutors who I think either haven't done their jobs efficiently enough, aggressively enough, or, or just smart enough. Um, I do like to tell the mob stories in the book because I lived all these stories and they're fun and they're interesting and they're real. I mean, they're better than, I dare say they're better than movies sometimes, some of these things that I actually lived through. Um, one, but I'll give you one specific example of a way that we may not recognize that that powerful people game the system that I immediately recognize from my mob experience. So we all know that wealthy, powerful people pay for legal dream teams, right? Going back to OJ and, you know, um, Jeffrey Epstein actually had a very intimidating team. And I argue in the book, that's the reason why Florida wimped out and gave him a ridiculous deal the first time through. But what people may not realize, it's very common for powerful bosses to pay for lawyers for other people. Why? To prevent them or make it virtually impossible for them to flip 
And I used to see that all the time in my mob cases. We would arrest 22 guys at once and all of them would have lawyers provided and paid for by the mob. Why? Because then if they wanted to flip, they couldn't do it. They couldn't go to their mob-funded lawyer and go, I think I'm going to cooperate, which often, by the way, is the best option for a person in that scenario. And other people do that as well. It is standard for corporations to do that. If a corporation comes under investigation, they offer to pay for their lawyers for all of their people. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. Sometimes It's very common and sometimes people want it. But if you look at, again, Donald Trump, for example, remember Cassidy Hutchinson. She testified this summer, past summer, in the January 6th committee. I think she was a, a enormously compelling witness. Well, she was only able to come forward and testify after she got rid of her original lawyer who had been selected and paid for by a Trump entity, a Trump-affiliated, one of these Trump-affiliated PACs or, or um, fundraising arms. And once she dumped that Trump-picked lawyer or Trump-affiliated lawyer, then she was able to come fully clean. But it was hard. It was hard. She's talked about publicly how hard it was for her to do that. And I tell a story in the book about a mob case I had where one guy lower down on the indictment wanted to flip, but he couldn't. And so he basically, I don't want to give it away, but he basically sends his girlfriend on a secret mission to contact us. And um, I'll leave it I'll leave it in suspense whether we manage to pull it off or not. I really enjoyed that part. And you quote a defense attorney saying they don't defend rats, I, I believe. Yeah. And I was just like, what? I'm glad you raised that because this used to make me crazy. There were defense lawyers. I would say to certain guys, I knew I was just, eventually I knew who these guys were. I was just trying to push their buttons. But I would go, hey, uh, if your guy, you know, these guys representing like powerful gangsters, they'll go, hey, if your guy's interested in talking, we'll definitely bring him in. And they go, they'd look at me like, I don't do rats. They would say explicitly, <laughs> I don't do rats. I don't do cooperators. Now, why is that? Because they don't want to get in trouble with the mob. They don't want to get cut off. Because if you represent someone who cooperates, you'll never be on that list again. Next time there's 22 defendants charged, you won't get the call. And I say in the book, this is completely unethical because as a lawyer, defense lawyer, you have an obligation to advise your client of all the options. And if you're saying, I'm not going to tell them about one option, often the best option, cooperation for my own business purposes, completely unethical. And honestly, I say in the book, it's often overlooked, by the way, by prosecutors and judges. I used to once in a while say in my office, this is BS. We can't allow this. And people go, eh, it's kind of how it is. You know what I mean? And, and judges know darn well. How could a guy be... How could a guy be a defense lawyer in this town in New York City for 30 years and never have cooperated anybody? That's mathematically impossible. Um, and like I said, guys would say it to me. I became friendly with these guys. They would go, ah, I don't do rats. You know me. I don't know. So yeah, that's a real that's a real feature in our system. In what's been called the trial of the century, O.J. Simpson seemed to face an unsurmountable battle. I've never seen so much evidence against someone in a case that's gone to trial as there was against O.J. Simpson, ever. Enter the so-called Dream Team, Simpson's all-star defense. That'll be interesting, I think. Including Johnny Cochran, Robert Shapiro, F. Lee Bailey, Alan Dershowitz, and of course, his most trusted ally, Robert Kardashian. So another thing that I would argue all of our listeners know, and they could probably recite this is that wealthy people get the best lawyers and you just touched on it with Epstein. Well, 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 I want to take a little bit of issue with the way you said it, because I do say in the book, cost of lawyers does not necessarily correlate with quality, but they get the most expensive lawyers for sure. Yes. Well, there's, there's two questions I want to ask about this, right? So when you're paying for a high priced lawyer, how much of it is create when you're mega wealthy, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars. How much is it 
you, that you're trying to create a team of the best legal minds, folks like yourself who are really good at presenting information to the public, so people that would actually go through the trial process, versus lawyers that maybe aren't the best, but they have a ton of connections with the folks that are trying them. How does that work out? That's an interesting question. So I do talk in the book about um, about various sort of legal dream teams. And I say, look, I, again, I give examples in the book of very wealthy people who paid tens of millions of dollars for their defense and were convicted, right? But the fact of the matter is, given the choice, you'd rather have a lot of money to pay for your lawyers. And I do say in the book, we know, prosecutors know, if you can't afford a lawyer for trial, because a lot of defense lawyers will, will charge basically two, two tranches of money. They'll charge X up to trial and then double that to go to trial. And I'll know there were times when I go, there's no way this guy can afford to go to trial. So it kind of undermines the leverage when a lawyer's going, we'll see you at trial. And I'm going, I know your guy can't afford trial. So um, that's an inherent inequity in the system. And your question, remind me of your question. I, I went on a little bit of a tangent there. My question was when you get a famous lawyer, maybe they kind of suck at the legal aspect of things, but they play racquetball with yeah. the prosecution team, like a form of lobbying. How effective is that? Is that a strategy even? Here's how I think it can matter. And I tell about this in the, in the book, including in my reporting. If you are a known quantity, especially, frankly, if you're a former prosecutor, you will be given a, as a defense lawyer, you will be given a presumption of credibility and perhaps a level of access that you wouldn't otherwise get. So I'm not saying like they go out on the golf course and go, hey, give my guy a pass. Sure, sure, sure. It's not quite like that. But I give an example in the book of how several of my former colleagues, when they became defense lawyers, started, you know, big, big money lawyers. Um, if they want a meeting with the boss, they get a meeting with the boss. Not everyone necessarily gets that. And I say candidly, we do tend, if it's one of the people I used to work with, one of my former supervisors, I'm going to start by assuming the best about that person, that the person has is credible because it's drilled into us as prosecutors. You have to maintain your credibility. So I think in that sense, who you get can make a big difference. And I do give examples in the book where, where powerful or well-connected lawyers really were able to engineer really um, remarkable outcomes. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein is the is the ultimate example of this. And people sort of speculated, well, Alexander Acosta, who later became Trump's labor secretary, he was the US attorney at the time. Oh, he must have been on the take. That, my theory, and I, I, think I, I think I argue this persuasively in the book, and we found some good evidence along these lines, is that Acosta was just afraid. He just didn't have the guts to take on this Alan Dershowitz, Kenneth Starr, all these four. I mean, the, the team that Epstein put together was like eight deep of, of you know, of, I don't want to say all-stars because I don't frankly think much of Alan Dershowitz's lawyering abilities, but but big, bold-faced names. And he went out. Acosta didn't want that fight. He wasn't up for the fight. And, and like I said, I found evidence that I put in the book to support that. It seems very similar before John jumps in here. It seems very similar to the dynamic of lobbying on Capitol Hill, where folks have pre-existing relationships. They go into the committee. As everybody knows, the committee staff is the ones who write the actual legislation. And then they trust their former colleagues. So they get the meeting. That's the one thing they get. And then in the back of some of these people's mind, when somebody from Exxon or whatever your big corporation is, is asking for insertion in the bill, there is fear that these if these folks don't insert it, they may not get that high paying private sector job, which maybe is similar in, in this instance. Yeah. I mean, there, look, there's some similarity there because there is a bit of a sort of a revolving door. I mean, 90% of the people who leave the Southern District of New York go work at the big firms and make a ton of money. Now, I will say, I don't, 
I don't know. I don't, I've never heard of an instance of that impacting anyone judgment. Like, gee, I don't want to bring this charge because I don't want to not get hired by such and such a firm. Um, but it's out there. It's well, I mean, you know, I joke at one point in the book, I say, we SDNY alums truly are everywhere because I'm telling some story and yet another player, I'm like yet another alum. Um, so we do sort of surface everywhere in this world. I don't know that people recognize that. I think people actually think that you, you go to the SDNY and you sort of, well, now he's a government worker and he's going to be there forever. I mean, it is an up and out place. You are there for five to 10 years, I would say, normally. I was there for eight and then I went to work for uh, in the state for Jersey for another five. There is a future there and it can help. If your friend calls you up and says, hey, can I come in for a meeting? You're going to tell him yes. Larry, this is this is a hot topic about whether there should have been criminal prosecutions. Do you have a view on this, having been there? Look, uh, I share Ben Bernanke's outrage. There clearly were a lot of outrageous things uh, that happened. If there were people who could plausibly be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, they should have been prosecuted rather than their companies being prosecuted. Whether there were such people and prosecutors just didn't pursue the case, or whether in extremely complicated situations, you know that something has gone badly wrong, but you can't prove somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the question, and that's not something I feel able to evaluate uh, from uh, the outside. But yes, you look at what happened, you look at the degree of irresponsibility of individuals, and I think it's a pretty hard thing to uh, I mean, defend. I think this is, this. You've, you've hit the quandary right on its head. When we're looking back at the crisis and what happened and what caused it, it's incredibly difficult to single out bank chief executives, very senior members of the board for the specific decisions which caused a Lehman, which caused the crisis as we saw it. So Ellie, we're talking about all the reasons that wealthy, prominent, significant people are able to kind of get away with criminality, all the pressures against them really being prosecuted. And there's lots more examples and illustration of this in the book for all the listeners. But you know, with all of this in mind, Ellie, I'm wondering how many prominent people out there could be prosecuted, but aren't being prosecuted. And I'm interested in this in the largest sense of like, you know, could you charge 80% of the Wall Street bankers but I'm also interested in in your experience, how many, you know, without naming any names, how many cases did you encounter of prominent people that could have been charged but are still out there not being charged? I don't, th- there's no possible way to put a number on it. And, and if I had to, it wouldn't be 80%. I mean, one thing that I do, I do want to urge everyone to keep in mind, it's not as simple as just something bad happened. So let's start charging people, right? After the financial collapse in 2008, 2009, prosecutors took, there's a great book, Chicken Shit Club. Um, about how prosecutors fail to charge a lot of those people. I actually disagree. I think it's a great book. I disagree a little bit because the premise seems to be like somebody has to get charged. But here's the thing. As a prosecutor, you have to be able to prove that that individual committed a specific crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's one thing to think that what someone did was sleazy or to suspect they committed a crime. You have to be able to prove it for sure. But one thing that we know for sure is this, and and this this is not debatable because it's a matter of policy, if a person is famous or powerful or rich or, or well-connected, the justice manual, which is the, the guide that we all get, it's a public document, you can Google it now, but it is it guides and it's binding on every federal prosecutor in the country. It says, if your defendant is a 
political uh, a political official or a well-known person and the case is likely to result in media trial in media coverage then you have to go to higher and higher levels of review and approval and just statistically mathematically logically if i could just make the decision that's just one person but if i have to then go up to my deputy chief my chief my crim div chief my us attorney maybe and i give examples in the book of this um there is one example that i say that i tell about of a fairly well-known Major League Baseball player who uh, ran into a little bit of trouble in a case of mine. And if he wasn't a baseball player who no one knew about, I would have made that decision myself. But because he was a celebrity of sorts, I had to go several layers higher up the line. I tell another story about how I did a human trafficking case, a, a sex trafficking case, where we arrested a bunch of people who were running these brothels. It was a big, complicated case, but I did it mostly myself. I was a third or fourth year at the time. Fast forward a year or so, and I get a call from one of the top people in the office, and he starts asking me questions about my case. And I, and I said to him, I couldn't help but pry. I said, why are you involved in a case like this? And he said, just chill out. You'll see in a couple of days. And sure enough, a couple of days later, we brought the case that ended up bringing down Elliot Spitzer. He wasn't charged, but he was a client. He was client nine in the indictment. And as soon as that story dropped, I went, oh, okay, I get it now. I get why the big bosses are involved in, 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 in a sex trafficking case because there was a, he was the governor of New York at the time. Um, but I assure you that case involving Elliot Spitzer was subject to a thousand times more scrutiny and rigor than my little case was. Ellie, you're, you've been talking a little bit about something that I wanted you to explain to the audience, which is about how probes and cases kind of get initiated. You mentioned that a little bit in your last comment. I mean, we've seen some prominent cases where a media story very clearly leads to a, to a probe. You talk about one in the book, which is, you know, the second investigation of Jeffrey Epstein. But another example is uh, this gentleman, Larry Ray, who just got sentenced to, I think, 60 years in jail, the Sarah Lawrence case, uh, the, the gentleman who had brainwashed these Sarah Lawrence students. And the prosecutors talked about how we found out about the case because of this big piece of investigative journalism. So in these prominent cases, is media reporting often um, an instigation that spurs prosecutors in developing a case? And if not, uh, tell us about some of the other ways in which a big probe, a prominent probe of, of known people kind of gets started. So absolutely, yes. Um, look, cases can start any number of ways. You can get information from a cooperator or an informant. You can pick up tips, but prosecutors do and should read the press <laughs> vigorously every day. And one of the points that I make in the book, you know, when you think about some of the prominent people, we could go, well, let's see, Jeffrey Epstein ultimately got charged by the Southern District of New York. He died in jail. Bill Cosby did some jail time. Then his case got thrown out, but he was in jail. Harvey Weinstein's in jail now. He's probably going to die in jail. But here's the thing. All of those cases would have never happened but for media coverage, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein got this pass in Florida, this ridiculous deal, but only when Julie Brown, a fantastic reporter down in Florida, blew the lid off that and the pressure exploded. And really, frankly, Alexander Acosta becoming a labor secretary um, spurred people to ask about this. Only then, 10 years later, did my former office, the Southern District, come in and clean up the mess. Harvey Weinstein, Cy Vance, who was the longtime DA here in Manhattan, I'm very critical of him gave Harvey Weinstein a pass the first time through. He had evidence that was absolutely strong enough to charge. He didn't pull the trigger. But after all the allegations about Weinstein started blowing up, he doubled back and did justice, but never would have. If the media never picked up on this, absolutely not. Bill Cosby, same thing. Bill Cosby was, was you know, sexually assaulting women for decades. And not until 
it became uh, the story grew in the media. Did prosecutors do anything about it? And even then, as I talk about in the book, they botched the case really sort of unforgivably. So yes, the media absolutely can and does often spur prosecutors to take action. I just want to say about the Weinstein case, uh, Ellie, because I'm glad that you mentioned it, the Cy Vance thing with, with Weinstein, you mentioned it in the book as well. It was in the media twice. It was in the media both times. And a lot of people don't know about this because the first time that Harvey almost got charged, I think it was 2015, it was in the New York Times yeah. that he was being investigated. This is, this is when Ms. Gutierrez taped him. Exactly. And you know, those of us who are, um, I was working in that entertainment industry at the time, knew Harvey Weinstein's reputation. This was a big story in, in our world. And we thought that was when Harvey was going to crash. Yeah. And uh, everyone remembers the big uh, She Said and the big uh, Ronan Farrow exposés in 2017 that brought him down. But it, it took two times that this story made its way into public reporting for yep. something to actually happen. It really did. And I talk about that. Ambra, uh, Ambra Bataliana Gutierrez is her name, model, um, who Harvey Weinstein basically tried to assault and she went to the NYPD and they had her wire up and she made a recording of him saying, oh, come on, I'm used to that. And he admitted that he had groped her and he admitted that he does it all the time. It's on tape. And still Cy Vance came up with some weaselly statement about, I, I don't remember how he phrased it, but he basically was like, in the interests of all, I've considered all the justice interests. And he backed out. And then only when it doubled back around and the story mushroomed, then he got tough. And the crazy thing is, after the conviction of Harvey Weinstein, he makes this grandiose statement. It's a new day for victims. Oh, really? Thanks. You know, glad, I mean, so look, better late than never, but make no mistake that that was purely driven by pressure, public pressure that was initiated by excellent media reporting from Ronan Farrow and others. And you are very tough on Cy Vance in this book. And I think rightfully so without, you know, being a, a legal mind like you are. You, you also mentioned that I believe it was the the numbers you outline are 44 uh, state attorney generals running campaigns, thousands of top county level uh, prosecutors also running campaigns. And there's this uh, relationship between defense attorneys that donate to uh, these folks' campaigns, and, and that may be influencing uh, their actions. Do you think that that was a primary motivator for Cy Vance in this Harvey Weinstein case? Or how should we understand this inherent conflict of interest that is built into our legal system. Yeah. So this was an issue for Cy Vance in, in the case involving the Trump children, Ivanka and Don Jr., and also to an extent in, in the Weinstein case. Um, I have been lucky that both prosecutors' offices I work for were not elected prosecutors. And we know that our federal prosecutors are not elected. The AGs have nominated and confirmed, and same with U.S. attorneys. Um, but the vast majority of prosecutors in this country are elected. And to me, that is completely toxic. Any mix of fundraising and electoral politics with prosecutorial decisions. Now, do I think Cy Vance is making decisions because somebody donated to him or, 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 or you know, because they didn't? No. Could it be influencing him in some maybe subconscious way? Maybe. You would query why would a defense lawyer make a donation to a DA candidate? They're not stupid. They don't give away their money, right? But here's, here's what I think we can all agree at a minimum. It looks horrible. And in the Trump children case, the lawyers who came in and essentially bailed them out were lawyers who had donated all this money to Cy Vance. And Cy Vance is so inept that when this came out, he returned the money. And then later, after he thought the story had blown over, he took an even bigger donation and then he got caught again and then he returned that. I mean, it looks horrible. 
And if you look at that and think, how could he do that? I agree with you. So I don't know that there's any fix here. Um, you know, we're not going to suddenly turn thousands of prosecutors from elected into appointed. Um, but I will say this, prosecutors are getting better at limiting who they take donations from. And in fact, a lot of the candidates to replace sidebands vowed, I will not accept donations from defense lawyers because there's an obvious conflict of interest there. It's almost like if you're in the market, if you're in trouble with Cy Vance's office, how do you not hire somebody who has donated to him? So, um, so I do think there's a real dangerous conflict there that often goes unnoticed. And, you know, Cy Vance, what an example of someone who's connected to the heights of power in the United States. His father was the U.S. Secretary yeah. of State. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's ultra, and, you know, the thing about Cy Vance is I don't think he's a horrible person who has bad intentions. I think he's short-sighted and I think he's weak-willed or was weak-willed. And I think when you combine those things, he was too easy to manipulate or, you know, to, to yeah, to manipulate. And I think he was not capable or strong enough to bring these charges that he needed to bring. Ellie, you were commenting just then on the difference in the basic structure of state and local prosecutor's office, where many of the top prosecutors are elected officials, and U.S. attorneys who are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. These are different, but there's still a political aspect in both cases, because the U.S. attorneys are appointed by presidents who are elected, and they're approved by senators who are elected. Um, there's much more of a degree of separation, though. But you served uh, at SCNY under U.S. attorneys that were appointed by Democrats and Republicans. And I wanted to ask you if you notice any differences in their approach, not just in regards to specific cases, but generally the way that they approach the issue that we're talking about, which is the prosecution of prominent and powerful people. From my perspective, as a what we call a line prosecutor, you know, banging out these cases on the line, uh, I've said before that January 20th, 2009 was no different in my view than January 21st, 2009. The last day of the Bush Republican administration was no different than the first day of the Obama Democratic administration. I joke with Preet, Preet Bharara, who became our U.S. attorney under Obama. I said, it's actually true. I said, I don't actually even remember you starting. Um, part of the reason was because I was on trial. So I was like really preoccupied. And then I was like, who's, oh, we have to write a different name now on the bottom. That's really important to understand about the Justice Department. Yes, the top leaders, the, the AG and the deputy AG and the U.S. attorneys are, are political appointees. But you're right, John, the process does create some more separation, some more insulation. And everyone else at the department is completely non-political. I actually, I, I was saying, saying to a friend of mine from the SDNY the other day, if I were to go around our first year floor, I can't even tell you what the political affiliations of anybody was. You didn't talk about it. It didn't matter. We went after Democrats, Republicans. And once in a while, I'll read now, so-and-so, who I used to work with, has been nominated to the bench by Donald Trump. And I'll go, oh, didn't know he was Republican. So-and-so is working in the White House for Biden. I go, oh, didn't realize that person was was a Democrat. I'm not trying to paint like an overly Pollyanna-ish image here, but I do want to be clear that DOJ, I don't think it's perfect. I certainly am critical of DOJ here, but the vast majority of DOJ prosecutors just do the job. We used to say, just, just do your work, do your job. But let me do, I do want to say this. It is perfectly legitimate, in my view, for different administrations to have different policy priorities. So for example, one administration may say, we're going to come down hard on fentanyl. We think fentanyl is a real problem. You know, the next administration may say, we're going to focus on human trafficking. I mean, I'll give you an example. Police supervision, investigations of police departments under Barack Obama, 
we launched a whole series. I don't know the exact number, but I think it was a dozen or more of what we call pattern and practice investigations. When you would send DOJ in and they would sort of do a full body MRI on a police department. Trump came in and explicitly said, we're not doing those anymore. I don't believe in those. They did one, I think. And then Biden came in and now we're going back the other way. I think all of those moves, whatever I think of that as a policy matter, perfectly legitimate. You have the right as the president and new administration to say, we're stressing this, we're de-stressing that. Where I draw the line though is interference, political interference in specific prosecutions. And that's really the subject of my first book about Bill Barr. And I, I, I think I make the case that he did that all too commonly. And that's Hatchet Man, if anybody wants to go out there and purchase that. My first child. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's actually, it's funny because I have these two books are being published like a little more than a year and a half apart. And everyone who's written books, how do you, how do you do two books? Like it's impossible. Um, And the answer is I just ignore my actual children. They don't really need me anymore. They're teenagers. So it makes it easier. I thought you were going to say ghostwriter like most politicians. No, I'll I'll give you a little insight here. (laughs) I was offered, you know, I had the option to use a ghostwriter, each each book. Every word in this is my, if you, if you. That's how you know you've made it big is they offer you a ghostwriter. No, because I would have had to pay for it. It's not like, but I was like, absolutely not. First of all, I write in my voice. Second of all, a lot of these stories are my stories, things I witnessed and did in the courtroom. That's not something I would ever do. Um, it would be the other thing is we had a, a this is a little bit of inside publishing, but they wanted when I did my first book, the contract said we're going to have a professional voice actor do your audio book, and I said no. I wanted the only thing I pushed back on. I was thrilled to have a book deal, but I said I want to do it, and they said all right, fine. And then it turned out someone tweeted or a bunch of people were tweeting like, are you going to do the audio on your own book? And I said, yeah, you know, absolutely. I said, unless Mark Hamill wants to do it. Now, you you know, Mark Hamill who played Luke Skywalker, who's now a VO voice voiceover actor. And Mark Hamill responded and he said, absolutely. You should do your own. I'm a big believer that authors should read their own books. So I sent that to my editor. I was like, Luke Skywalker agrees with me. And I will say the audio book did really well the first time, but much better than we, we even thought it would do. So, uh, the audio this time I did it myself again. I mean, how ridiculous would it be to have some great voice, you know, James Earl Jones like, in my first trial at the SDNY? I mean, I'm, it's me, you know, it's like in my voice. So, And we begin with major breaking news in the Justice Department's investigation into those documents seized at former President Trump's Florida club. The Washington Post reports they included highly classified information about a foreign government's nuclear program, quote, a document describing a foreign government's military defenses, including its nuclear capabilities, was found by FBI agents who searched the former president's Mar-a-Lago residence and private club last month, according to people familiar with the matter. Some of the seized documents detail top secret U.S. operations so closely guarded that many senior national security officials are kept in the dark about them. Earlier, one of the reporters who broke this story said the discovery of this document is huge. We don't know how much. We don't know which foreign government is involved. We have some theories, but we published what we can establish with great certainty. And that is that among the records seized, there were details so classified, so concerning that it was covered by this classification material that relates to a foreign government's nuclear capacity. I wanted to circle back to the media and you're now a media personality analyst, I think is the proper term. You're sitting at CNN as we are recording this um, in the beautiful room with a white wall behind you. Uh, But no, more specifically, uh, Ellie, we always hear 
the DOJ basically say we never comment on cases or we don't comment on cases yes. all the time. However, in certain instances, I also we know the DOJ is big, right? It's the FBI, it's lawyers, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I believe it was the Trump documents case that comes to mind. Yeah, there were leaks apparently from the DOJ, according to credible reporters about uh, the scope and scale of the documents. And that leads me to the question, is it ever appropriate for members of the DOJ to leak on sensitive cases? Is there ever, from your understanding and your practical experience, situations where there is a coordinated media strategy by the folks at the top to leak certain information to influence the public narrative of the case that is being investigated or tried? So on your last question, not that I'm aware of, I can't say it it, it doesn't happen that way. Okay. So prosecutors do say all the time, we don't comment on ongoing cases. Understood. That means other than what we do in court, right? We we obviously, if you're standing in court and, and a lot of times prosecutors are good at putting information in their briefs. And I think we saw quite a bit of that in the Mar-a-Lago case. I mean, look, We've all seen that photo a million times of the documents splayed across the ground. That was not leaked. People have wrongly said that was leaked because it was attached to a court filing. However, did DOJ really need to put a photo in the court filing? Like, was that necessary? I'm not so sure. DOJ absolutely is aware of of the news and the media and should be. And there do seem to be stories that could only have come from DOJ. And that's been the case under Justice Department's going back for decades. I do think there's a time when you have to say a little bit more, when there's so much of a public interest. However, it's a dangerous practice. Look at Jim Comey. I mean, Jim Comey came out and broke every you know rule operating procedure in, in the book when he made multiple statements about Hillary Clinton, public statements right before the election. You're supposed to be especially careful right before an election. So I think there's a balance that prosecutors, a difficult balance, have to strike there between sometimes making an exception, saying a little more, maybe even at times giving a news story to a reputable news story, to a reputable source if you feel like you need to correct something, um, but also not blowing up your own case and not not sort of interfering with the rights of people who are being investigated. Ellie, you're just talking about stuff that is connected to the other big news story that's relevant to your work, which was another New York Times story, which came out on Friday, that was kind of blowing the lid off of the infamous Durham investigation, the one that lasted twice as long as the probe it was supposedly probing. Ellie, is this something that you think needs to actually be investigated, or do we need to end this cycle of investigations of investigations of investigations? Right. No, I do not think there should be an investigation of the investigation of the investigation. However, we all need to take a serious lesson from the debacle of the Durham investigation. I mean, even the idea of investigating the investigators for flagrantly political purposes has been a colossal waste of time, of money, of attention. Durham has racked up acquittals left and right. He has he has violated several of the practices. He is putting stuff in his briefings just to feed these ridiculous narratives. It's been a complete disgrace and an abomination. Um, I think we ought to learn a lesson of the danger of when you weaponize someone politically. And look, there's no question about it because the day after, essentially after Mueller finished, Trump said, we need to investigate the investigators and Barr went right there and did exactly that. And Durham has come up with absolutely nothing. In the new reporting you were talking about, John talks about how Barr was, I mean, not at all shocking. I'm not sure what exactly he's new about. I guess there's new details. But then he was pressuring Durham 
to try to make findings that were were favorable to Trump. And and Barr is really obsessed with this, with it, with uh, unmasking the Russia hoax, quote unquote. Um, so I think there's a really important lesson there. But but no, I don't think the answer is to <laughs> appoint someone to investigate John Durham. Oh my God, it would never end. <laughs> Maybe Jim Jordan's committee will investigate New York Times's investigation. Yeah. So we'll have an investigation of the investigation and the investigation of the investigation. Let's let's go for it. Let's have as many. Yeah. Let's go all the way down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Turtles all the way down. As former President Donald Trump launches his bid for a second term as president, there are still several legal clouds swirling around him. He is facing investigations in multiple states and districts across the country, starting in his home state, originally of New York. The state attorney general has sued the former president, three of his children, and the Trump organization for, quote, expansive fraud. There's also an ongoing criminal trial launched by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office against the Trump organization that's related to alleged tax avoidance. Moving down the coast to Washington, D.C., there's the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation. A federal grand jury has been impaneled and witnesses are being interviewed to see if Mr. Trump mishandled classified materials after he left office. And then, of course, there are the two January 6th investigations, one led by the Department of Justice. That one has been interviewing witnesses. The other is being led by the House Select Committee, which subpoenaed Trump for his testimony and documents. That subpoena is currently in the midst of a legal fight between the committee and Trump's attorneys. Finally, there is the ongoing investigation in Georgia by the Fulton County District Attorney over possible 2020 election interference. Trump was recorded, as you'll recall, calling Georgia's Secretary of State asking him to find missing votes. I want to stay on Trump. Uh, Again, folks, the book is Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. And in the book, Ellie, you really take ton of different perspectives into consideration, one being the jurors. And I really love that chapter. I don't want to give everything away. So (laughs) folks, you got to go get the book if you want to hear about how jurors uh, view and look at these famous cases where they're involved. Um, But uh, taking fear aside from it, I want to look at the practicality of selecting a Trump jury, right? Because we have cases in Georgia, SDN. Is it even possible to, to select a jury for Trump. Everybody knows him. Everybody has a bias, a, opinion on him. They probably all have social media posts about him one way or the other. And if it is possible, how on earth would we go about it? It absolutely is possible to pick a, a trial jury for Donald Trump. People have picked juries for household names before, whether it's Martha Stewart or Bill Cosby or, right, or Harvey Weinstein. It would be difficult, but this is important to understand. You are not looking for jurors who've never heard of the defendant. You're looking for jurors who can put aside whatever beliefs, whatever uh, prejudices they have. Now, are you going to necessarily believe someone if they say, yeah, I can call this straight? Absolutely not. You're going to do your diligence. As a lawyer, you have a certain ability to strike jurors, to throw them off. Um, But we have a process that's very good at this. Um, And you're going to need to ask very pointed questions about what your views are of Donald Trump. Would you be capable of judging him fairly? Now, again, the lawyers will sort of have the final say there, but I do want to say this. This is really important to keep in mind. You know, even if Donald Trump gets indicted, and it could well happen, even if it's in a very Democratic-leaning area, Fulton County, Georgia, heavy blue county. I did the research on this in the book. It went 72 to 26 for Joe Biden in 2020. 26% voted for Donald Trump. 
And so you look at that and you go, that's pretty good for prosecutors, right? Not really. Not when you do the math because your jury needs to be 12 people. And I had my physics PhD brother-in-law run this and I had another math friend confirm this. The odds of getting at least one Trump juror in that scenario are 90, I forget if it's 96 or 98%. It's in the book. The odds of getting at least two Trump voters on the jury are high 80%, 70-something percent. You're going to have three. I mean, good luck. Good luck. Get it. Maybe you can. Look, the judge is going to tell everyone, you need to put aside your views and put aside your who you voted for and just vote based on the evidence. But humans are humans. I mean, I think that's a uh, again, I, I won't give away too much on the jury uh, part, but what I say is we like to think of a jury as sort of this this all-knowing monolith, uh, but really it's just 12 poor people, not poor you know, financially, but 12, 12 people who are unlucky enough to get thrown together and just want to get the hell out of there and render, you know, re- render a verdict and go home. There are real complexities that come with trying any high-profile person, and none will ever be more complex than Donald Trump, but it is absolutely possible to, to, to get a jury. It would be fascinating jury selection process, but, but it, would, it would do the job. Hello, I'm Leonardo DiCaprio, and some of you may know that I'll be playing Jordan Belfort in the new film, Wolf of Wall Street. Now, what separates Jordan's story from others like it is the brutal honesty in which he talks about the mistakes that he's made in his life. I've been in his company many times, but there is nothing quite like Jordan's public speaking and his ability to train and empower young entrepreneurs. Jordan stands as a shining example of the transformative qualities of ambition and hard work. And in that regard, he is a true motivator. Ellie, this is the last question. This is a question that I always want to ask prosecutors, especially white collar prosecutors, including the ones in my own family. But I have noticed that especially in the last decade, two decades, our culture and our media have had so many depictions of white collar criminals uh, telling the story from their point of view. And we've talked about how white collar crime can be a winning game because there are so many things getting in the way of your prosecution. But we've seen even in these noteworthy cases where the criminals are prosecuted and are found guilty and serve their time, they manage to turn the notoriety from the case into its own racket and continue making money off the fraud. We saw this with Jordan Belfort, uh, but we've seen it with so many others. And you know, even some of the people associated with Trump, Paul Manafort, Michael Cohn, doing podcasts, writing books, as a prosecutor, what do you think about this? Well, that's interesting. Some of it can make for really fascinating content. I don't have any problem with somebody telling their story and even profiting off it. I don't think people, you know, um, I think it's up to obviously the consumer, whether they want to patronize that kind of material, but I don't have a problem with it. I think it's important that we get views into the criminal justice system from all different angles. You know, it's a little different if you're talking about like a mass murder or Charles Manson putting out a book. I, I don't know that we can legislate against it. I know there's been some laws that try to prevent that, but I have no problem with someone like Michael Cohen, who's become a friend of mine saying, here's what I went through. Here's what I learned. Here's my experience. I actually think that's good for the overall dialogue. <laughs> 